In part one, I started with a few stories illustrating our environmental problems in our lives. I hope I achieved this not just as something far away on the other side of the world or in time, you know, future generations. We feel helpless, hopeless, futile. We feel helpless to stop ourselves from doing something we know hurt others. I also mentioned the Spodic Method, a leadership technique that motivates people to want to and to act sustainably, not oblige them so they have to or they're supposed to, but so they want to. When we oblige them, they resist. When it comes from intrinsic motivation, we act for our own reasons and we want to do more. So in this episode, I'm going to share what I find my greatest source of optimism, which is how people change when led through the Spodic Method. I want to start with the same context as last time, though. How many people of you listening are aware that we humans face environmental problems? How many of you pollute more than you want to? How many of you try to reduce but can't as much as you want? How many of you have given up trying? Do you feel feelings like hopelessness, helplessness, guilt, shame, insecurity, anxiety, relevant to the environment? Do you want to overcome those feelings? I'm going to share a couple stories. I'm going to start with Andrew, a guest on my podcast. He is a, to say the least, staunch Trump supporter. When I was recording with him, you only hear the audio, but I'm looking at him in the video screen. There's a giant Trump 2020 behind him. Most environmentalists that I think of tend to view Trump supporters as the opposition, someone to fight against. I've not found that to be the case. Uh, Andrew's a great guy. I met him through Rob, another guest on the podcast, also a big Trump supporter. In this series, I'm not going to go into the full what is the Spodic method and how to practice it, but it begins by asking the person what the environment means to them. This is maybe my favorite part of the podcast is hearing this answer, because as I'm recording this, I'm approaching episode 700. Of all the people I've recorded with, I've never heard the same answer twice, and it's always something really touching and meaningful. Sometimes it's walking in the woods, sometimes it's looking at a sunset, sometimes it's playing with their dog, sometimes it's playing a sport. It's always something really touching. Most of the time, people come up with something not, they start with something not related to the environment. They'll talk about stuff they read in the paper about what's going on far away, and they're worried. That's not their actual experience with the environment. Most people, it's something involving, I think most people think of with nature, trees, the sky, ocean, streams, things like that. Andrew, we talked a lot about politics things. When I asked him what the environment meant to him, he started talking about small town America. That made sense to me. It's not what I would have thought of, so it was a new thing for me. And that's one of the reasons why I like this part of the podcast so much. He talks about how dirty big cities are, and that's coming into where he lives, which is a small town in the middle of the country. And I ask him how it makes him feel. And listen to the episode for it, but there's a lot of feeling in it, and it's very meaningful to him and deeply meaningful. The next stage is after the person has shared the emotions that come out with their connection with the environment. And it's usually something... There's a range. Sometimes it's awe and beauty. Sometimes it's connection and oneness. Sometimes it's tranquility or peace. Lots of different things. Then when the emotions are out there, and remember, emotions motivate people, I invite them, and it's always at their option, to think of something that they can do to act on those emotions or that emotion. That way they're doing it for their reasons, not because someone's telling them to, not coercion, convincing, cajoling, seeking compliance, which I can't stand. And he comes up with, we go back and forth a bit, and he comes up with he's going to recycle. He goes through a lot of beverage containers a week. Now, when he says he's going to recycle these plastic bottles, I'm thinking, well, plastic recycling doesn't really work. I would avoid the plastic in the first place. But I don't say that because leadership is not about where I am. It's where the other person is. I then walk him through the process to specify what he's going to do. So I think if I remember right, it was he was going to avoid, no, he was going to recycle for one month. Then we schedule talking again in a month. So a month later, I talked to him. 
And I say, how did it go? He said, it was really fun. He said, for one thing, his garbage was much less because stuff was not going in the garbage, it was going into the recycling. His girlfriend got into it with him. They were doing it together. At one point, they took the recycling to some recycling facility. And he says, he walks back out and they give him six bucks. He gets paid for it. But he's like, it's not the money. That's not the point. It was just rewarding. It was fun. It felt good. And then he said, it was so simple. Everyone should do this. I want to point out a Trump supporter was saying everyone should recycle. This to me, it shows something that it kills me about the political situation in this country, that, that the environment is something partisan, because the more that I connect with people, the more I find that everyone has, when I ask what the environment means to them, there's always something there. There's always deep, rich, meaningful emotions that when effectively accessed and connected to acting on them, make the action meaningful, make it purposeful. So I don't think one person recycling is going to make much of a difference. Divided by 8 billion, it's very little. But it's not big versus little that's the measure that's important here. It's intrinsic versus extrinsic. Because if it's intrinsic, then the person will find meaning in what they do. They'll want to do it again. The next thing they do will be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, sometimes you need leadership to continue past the mindset shift. I give them the mindset shift. That's what the Spodic Method delivers, plus the first step of continual improvement. If they keep up with the continual improvement, each thing is maybe a small bit bigger than the thing before, but bigger. So I'm not going to argue what a lot of people say is that if enough people do little things, it adds up. I'm not going to argue against that. But what really adds up is lots of people doing big things that they share with each other. Again, one person changing does not make a movement. A full solution would require governments, corporations, institutions changing, but they won't change as long as we keep buying their products, funding their extractive, polluting business models. And besides, governments and corporations, them changing is not the start of a marathon. They are the end of a marathon. And for that matter, the beginning of another one, though at least that next one, the wind will be at our backs. It may not seem fair. It may seem the most unfair thing you've ever seen or heard of, that the people and institutions causing the biggest and most problems and benefiting the most from them, who you think should change first, and the most that they have to be dragged to act. But if we wait for them to change before we start, we will wait forever. The fastest, most effective way to influence them to act and to change is to realize that systemic change begins with personal change. You cannot lead others to live by values that you live the opposite of. Now, I didn't say do one thing and then stop. This is not sufficient, but it's necessary. It's a necessary start. When you start acting, you will eventually look back and realize that acting is glorious. You'll wish you had started earlier. As much as you think now, maybe you don't, but many people say, oh, governments, corporations, they should change. They're the ones, not me. But you're going to wish you had started earlier. As I said last time, there are legacies to last possibly millennia to be made. That's if fame turns you on. It's also acting sustainably, healthier, more fun, and will connect you more to family, to community. Releasing you from what I see all around me is isolation and misery. I'll talk more about that next time. Again, big or small isn't the point, but intrinsic versus extrinsic. When people act for intrinsic motivations, and as a leader, you bring this out of them, it's meaningful and purposeful what they do, so they want to continue and to share. Eventually, however big or small they start, it leads to big and big that they want to share. Again, the process in in corporate speak is it's a mindset shift followed by continual improvement.
when you do it, you start sharing it with others, partly because they see what's going on and partly because when I teach you the Spodic method, I teach you how to teach others. And when you teach others, they start doing it too. So sharing leads to community. In my world, many people around me are changing. One person recently said, actually two people recently said, I can see my last flight. Now, I didn't suggest that either of them stop flying. They just both, they committed to different things, like picking up litter, things like that. But they found the joy and community in it. And now they could see, they know what flying brings them. They're not fooling themselves. They're not doing it for anyone else. They see that if they stop flying, it will improve their lives. There's many things that attach to that of recognizing what's nearby and what we say to our local world when we say, oh, I have to leave and go a thousand miles away every couple times a year. Also, after that you change a few people, you'll find each other sharing and growing. I'm surrounded by this. And so people come up with stuff that I never would have thought of and I start doing it. I feel like I'm swimming downstream. You will too. After we, that is me plus all the people that I've trained, you, after we lead a very few influential people, large groups will start to change. So someday I'll have on my podcast, Oprah, or I'll be on some primetime special with her. And then 100 million people will see that there's something to be done that's different than just being told Bangladesh is going to be underwater or the Ogallala aquifer is going to run dry. Here's what you have to do. I see the Spodic method like nonviolent civil disobedience that in India, South Africa, in the U.S., at first it sounded crazy. People felt like we have to fight. We have to fight back. But it worked. I'm not saying it, you know, we've, we haven't achieved world peace yet, but this is a tactic that, like that tactic, enables a strategy to achieve a mission. Let me give you another example. This example is Rhonda. I was at a lunch. It was like a potluck lunch. At these things, you end up sitting next to random people. And I sat next to this woman, Rhonda, and we just got to talking. Turns out she's a single mother. She was there with her son. She lives in the Bronx. She's African-American. I'm white. A lot of times when I talk to people about how I avoid packaged food and I take years to fill up a little garbage and all these different things that I do, people say, oh, you don't know what it's like to be a single mom in a food desert with three kids and three jobs. And now they may not know the years that I spent in a household with a single mom with three kids. It was joint custody. So we also spent time at, at my dad's house where he was also single. And we were in a food desert and they gave out welfare sandwiches in the summer. But Rhonda is a single mom. And I said, you know, all these people tell me, I don't know what it's like. And frankly, for whatever experience I do have in such a household, I actually don't know what it's like. Would you be willing to come over? And I invited her over for my famous no packaging vegan stew and to record a podcast episode. And you can hear the episodes with her. And I want to say what happened afterward, which was that she enjoyed the experience and she invited me up to the Bronx to lead a cooking workshop to make famous no-packaging vegan stew for her community up there. I remember when I was up there the first time, there was a group there, and I chopped and brought my pressure cooker and, and cooked the stew. After I gave my presentation, the first person raised their hand and said, you know, you can do this because you're down there in, uh, by Union Square, and for people not from New York, Union Square has a big farmer's market, so I could access fresh vegetables there. And they say, you have access to that, and you have access to, the other, to these other things, but we don't. The next person who raised their hand said, actually, I, I know at least where we can get, I forget, maybe nutritional yeast. And then someone else said, oh, I know where else where I can get blah, blah, blah. And, and Rhonda came up to me afterward, and she said, they think that they can't do it, or they thought they couldn't do it, but you planted the seed, and we can do this. I also point out that a lot of the things, I, I make a big effort for accessibility and attainability to be part of what I do. 
because of those lean, impoverished times in my childhood. So a lot of the things that I use, like cabbage, for example, you can keep that for weeks. And now I'm fermenting a lot more. Anyway, back to Rhonda. A later time, she brought me up to Drew Gardens. And if you look in my podcast and blog enough, you'll find how much I love Drew Gardens. So Drew Gardens is, it was an, on the Bronx River, which is a small little rivulet in the Bronx. And I've seen pictures of it before, before people got to it, and it was wrecked. There was garbage, it was denuded, it was a big mess. People there went in, cleaned it up, and turned it into what, in my heart, is on par with Central Park. And if you talk to New Yorkers, especially people who've lived in New York, as I have for how long has it been? Since the 80s. Central Park is, means a lot to me. Drew Gardens is just a jewel. In fact, after I give, so now I give an annual presentation up there. They have gardens, community gardens, where people plant stuff. And I, I tend to go at the end of the fall and they just give me tons of vegetables to take home. This butternut squash I got last time was maybe the most delicious butternut squash I've had. And I've had really good ones from local farms and it grew in the Bronx. Luckily, no one told them what people tell me, which is, Josh, you don't understand. People up there can't do the things that you do. Luckily, no one told them because they're doing a lot more than I am. Let me go to another example. Mark Reed. Colonel Mark Reed is at West Point. He's a department head. If you don't know about West Point, it's one of the premier organizations for teaching leadership. It's for teaching the U.S. Army. When I did the Spodek Method with him, he committed to reducing his household trash by half for one month. He hadn't measured it before, and he didn't know if he could get the rest of the family on board, but he committed to it. And all I knew was that a month later, I was going to go back up to West Point and record and find out how things went. So I went back up about a month later. What we hadn't counted on was that the month was December, and December means Christmas, and Christmas means buying a lot of stuff and a lot of packaging and things like that. So he sits down with his family and says, I committed to reducing our garbage by half. How are we going to do this? Because it's Christmas. First, they said, well, let's not have wrapping paper. And then eventually they came around and said, instead of material gifts, we're going to do a staycation. So the family went to a nearby nice hotel and they just spent the holiday together. And he said, Josh, you'd have to ask them to get each of their opinions, but I believe I can speak for everyone in the family that it was our best Christmas ever. Not despite no gifts, but because no gifts. The material stuff was distracting from the time spent together. This is really touching to me. He also said there are a couple things that came from it. I call Mark my one-man wrecking crew because many people say why they can't act more sustainably, and they, give, and they give a small number of excuses or range of excuses. One of them is their job. One of them is, oh, the, my family won't let me. One of them is, oh, in the culture where I live, they don't put it in these words, but something about where they live is like that. So Mark Reed, he loves his country. He will not allow anything to stand between him and helping his students and the army defend the freedom of this nation. He loves his family, and he's not going to let anything get in between him and his family. He loves Christmas, and he wants to celebrate Christmas following traditions that he always has. He was able to achieve all of these things more by acting sustainably. And had no one prompted him, he never would have done it. But prompted, it became easier and more natural. In fact, 
After this, every year I ask him how Christmas is going, if he's keeping up this tradition with the staycations, and he says yes. Even as the children grow up and go to college, they still like the physical, in-person connection. It worked its way into how he teaches his students. Apparently, the teachers and cadets, the, the students at West Point, get to know each other very well. And he lives, I think, on campus or very nearly to campus. Cadets come over all the time, and his family says, this is how we do X more sustainably and so forth. I wouldn't be surprised. I actually should go back and ask him if he's worked this stuff into how he teaches. I think sustainability and being more effective at defense can go together. But you'd have to ask him about that. Listen to the podcast for more examples. There's hundreds, but they include CEOs and executives, including from very polluting companies and industries, ExxonMobil, McKinsey, McDonald's, for example, also elected and government officials from local, state, federal levels. That's in the U.S. and a few so far from outside the U.S. and from all political stripes, from the military, generals, West Point department heads, a Navy SEAL, also cultural leaders, including winners of the Nobel, Pulitzer, Olympic gold, Super Bowl, and other prizes, best-selling authors, TED speakers with tens, I think there's a couple with hundreds of millions of views, old, young, male, female, non-binary, LGBTQ plus leaders, as well as people who can't stand terms like non-binary. The list goes on. It works, you know, if you have lungs, if you breathe, if you have arteries and veins, it works. Besides the podcast, I also lead workshops and coach executives one-on-one at some of the world's largest, most polluting companies, leading them to change and lead corporate-level, constituent-level mindset shifts followed by continual improvement. Again, I don't claim that these one-on-one interactions or even one-to-one organization interactions, that that changes the world, but it's the beginning of a marathon, and it leads people intrinsically. A lot of these people, I come back to them later, and they remember what that experience was like, and it grows on them. I think it'll grow on you when you practice it. So there's a parallel series to this series in which I teach the Spodic Method. For this series, just we can know that it's possible, and changes like these few that I shared can happen and do happen predictably, and that they build to more. You can learn the Spodic Method, you can practice it, and you can teach it. Again, it's a tactic that enables a strategy that works to achieve a mission. It's the opposite of CCCSC, that is convincing, cajoling, coercing, seeking compliance, which I see as getting people to dig in their heels, and I I see it as killing sustainability, but the Spodek method opens it up. So you don't have to practice it, you don't have to do it, but know that it works, know that it's effective, and know that it gives solid reason to be optimistic about the future. Because in part three next time, I'm gonna talk about some of the big challenges It can seem kind of dark if you don't have in you, we can do something about it. And part four after that, we'll talk about specifically what that brighter future is and how to get there.